Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of the Graduate Council, I welcome you to this Jefferson Lecture. Uh, the purpose of the Jefferson Lecture series is to recall to members of our community the principles and practices of American democracy. Over the last few years, we've heard from eminent public servants as Jefferson lecturers, notably Tom Foley, former Speaker of the House of Representatives, and Senator Alan Simpson. These first-rate politicians share with our current lecturer the very high esteem of the people they work with. It has long been my educational goal, a goal happily shared by your Jefferson Lecture Committee, to acquaint our community with exemplary figures from the political arena. Politicians are frequently, too frequently, judged at a distance by roll call votes and not by their contribution to the framing and deliberation of issues. Yet it is through these activities, the contributions of extraordinary men and women to the lives of the work groups that they inhabit, that makes for real excellence in public service. It is usually completely unsung and unrewarded. As many of you know, I like to sing about it all the time. And I cannot think of a better exemplar of great public service than our lecturer today, the Honorable Abner Mikva. Ab Mikva was born in Milwaukee, was educated in the Milwaukee Public Schools at the University of Wisconsin and Washington University in St. Louis, and went to law school at the University of Chicago. There he compiled a superb academic record. He became editor of the Law Review, was elected to the Order of the Coif, and he went off to clerk on the Supreme Court for Justice Sherman Minton. He returned to Chicago to practice law, and in 1956 he ran as a Democrat, independent of the Daily Machine, for the state legislature. He served there for a decade, and then ran for Congress from Chicago's south side. He didn't make it the first time, but in 1968, a year that was not a hopeful one for Democrats or liberal Chicagoans, the Daily Machine backed Mikva for the Democratic nomination for his South Side seat, and he defeated the 84-year-old Barrett O'Hara, the sole surviving congressman to have fought in the Spanish-American War. <laughs> in Congress, Mikva served on the Judiciary Committee and developed inside the Beltway a sky-high reputation as an intellectually gifted, principled, and decent liberal. But his seat was not secure, and in 1971, the Republican state legislature, with the blessing of the Daily Machine, abolished Mikva's seat, and Mikva was squeezed out. So he made an extraordinary move. An open seat had been created just above Chicago's north side, territory that in the past had been solidly Republican, and I mean solidly, the most Republican territory in the country. Uh, Mikva got the Democratic nomination, but lost narrowly to Republican Sam Young. As a result of this loss, 
he missed out serving in the House Judiciary Committee that voted to impeach Richard Nixon. But in 1974, the year of Watergate, Mikva came back and he held his seat deep in Republican territory for two more elections. In 1979, President Carter offered Mikva a seat on the D.C. Circuit Court, and in due course, in 1991, he became Chief Judge. In 1994, he left the bench to become counsel to the President of the United States. When he retired, he joined the law faculty of the University of Chicago, and now he teaches at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Thus, he is one of the few leaders in American history to have served in high positions in all three branches of government. An even smaller, more select group has had the intellectual insight and the legal sensitivity to think creatively as he does about the separation of powers issues he has lived with and about the role of the Constitution in practical affairs. It's with the greatest pleasure that I introduce to you now the Honorable Abner J. Mikva of Illinois. The title of his talk is Invoking the Constitution Ineptly. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nelson, for that generous introduction. Not too loud. Some people are saying yes, and some people are saying no. Well, since I don't know how to change the volume on this, let me use the podium mic instead. Um, I very much appreciate that introduction. I'm sensitive to introductions because um, I've had my share of odd ones. Uh, one of the oddest occurred uh, in the 1964 election for the state legislature in Illinois, political uh, buff that you are, Nelson, you will remember, and some of the others may remember, that we had an at-large election in Illinois because we couldn't agree on reapportionment, and the entire state House of Representatives ran at large. That meant there were 218 names on the ballot for the legislature. The ballot was three and a half feet long, and it was a, a disaster for the poor voters. They hadn't a clue as to what was going on. The only upside of it, aside from the fact that I won, the only upside of it was that um, it brought some groups into the political arena for the first time who had never been there before. And I was asked to speak to a northwest suburbs garden group that uh, wanted, was confused about the ballot. And the president of the group called me up and she was very concerned. She said, now you know, Mr. Mikva, we're a not-for-profit, nonpartisan group. Please don't give us a political speech. Just come out and explain to us what the long ballot is about. And I promised her I'd be a good boy, but she obviously didn't trust me because when she introduced me, she said, now, Mr. Mick was a member of the blank political party. And in the last legislature, the blank political party had 87 members, and Mr. Mikva was one of the biggest blanks down there. So, I thank you for your introduction. I've always believed in innocence by association, certainly since the McCarthy days. And to be associated with such former Jefferson lecturers as James Conant, Archibald Cox, Gerhard Casper, and Austin Ranney, who was here, makes me feel very innocent indeed. And I'm pleased to be here because Thomas Jefferson remains one of my heroes. He's withstood the test of time. He even withstood the trashing that he took from my constitutional law professor. Some of you constitutional law scholars will remember the name. I 
was originally taught constitutional law by William Winslow Krosky. Uh, Professor Krosky was a product of the New Deal, and he started to write a law review article, started out to write a law review article defending most of the New Deal legislation as an appropriate use of the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Well, like happens often with law review articles, he ended up with a three-volume works on the Constitution, uh, which unfortunately did not get a great reception from most other constitutional scholars in the country, but remains some challenging and interesting constitutional history. But Jefferson didn't come out too well, uh, as far as Mr. Krosky was concerned, partly because Jefferson was not a big government man, and partly because as far as Krosky was concerned, Jefferson copped out of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, Krosky thought you should be in the kitchen if you wanted to cook the meal, and Jefferson was off in Paris while the Constitution was being written. And so my admiration for Jefferson had to withstand a whole year of constitutional onslaught. But it was worth it. There aren't too many heroes that, from our past that still look as good as they did when we didn't know that much about them. I'm reminded of a wonderful story about an obstetrician on the turn of the 19th century who was called out to deliver a baby on a cold winter stormy night and he drove in his wagon for his horse and buggy for several hours and he came back late the next day and his wife said, you poor dear, uh, did you have a bad time? And he said, oh, it was terrible. He said, I had to drive for hours, it was stormy. He said, there was a terrible delivery. I just had such trouble getting the baby out. But it was worth it. Victor Hugo was born tonight. Well, <laughs> we're not always able to judge the heroic proportions uh, of people at the right time. But as it turned out, as far as I'm concerned, Jefferson's position on the Constitution was such that his absence was probably a blessing. I'll come back to that in a minute. But first, let's talk about the document. What is this Constitution that generates such awe and allegiance? Well, first of all, as you can see, it's very, very small. It's the most succinct of any national constitution in the world. It's now the oldest in the world. It has been used as a model by most of the other constitutions that are extant in the world. In fact, three quarters of those other constitutions, world constitutions, have been written since 1971, and this has been their model by and large. And because of its succinctness, and in spite of its age, over 200 years, it has seldom been amended or altered. Altogether, there are 27 amendments to the Constitution, 10 of which make up the Bill of Rights and which were adopted almost contemporaneously with the body of the Constitution. In fact, that was the subject of one of the earliest political deals uh, in our country. Thomas Jefferson and his supporters agreed to support the ratification of what they perceived as a very flawed uh, document. If Madison and his followers would agree to push the Bill of Rights as the first ten amendments in the Constitution in the first Congress. Uh, in fact, um, originally Jefferson had a rather bizarre idea. He wrote to one of his supporters that if he were, in, and here's what he says, were I in America, I would advocate ratification of the Constitution warmly until nine states had adopted And then I would just as warmly take the other side to convince the remaining four states to not to come into it until the Declaration of Rights is annexed to it. Now, Madison talked them out of that kind of uh, uh, macabre arrangement, and they instead made a 
a political deal, uh, which uh, amazingly, considering what happens to some political deals of more current times, everybody did what they were supposed to do. Um, they kept their part of the bargain. Now, it's true, Madison was under a political gun anyway when he pushed the Bill of Rights in the first Congress because two states, Virginia, his own Virginia and New York, had already introduced proposals to have a whole new constitution. Here the constitution was barely two years old and uh, there were some important players that were saying let's get rid of it and go to a new one. Um, but uh, Madison uh, was able to instead uh, use the first congress as his forum for putting together the, the Bill of Rights, uh, the first ten amendments to the constitution, which are in the Constitution today, and that leaves only 17 occasions on which the Constitution has been amended in over 200 years. Now two of those were the imposition of prohibition and the repeal of prohibition, so they don't really count. They kind of wash each other out. Ten or more, depending on how you count, um, of the other amendments deal with the election process, the franchise, the service of our elected officials, which means that on only a very, very few occasions has the country found it necessary to tamper with the substance of the Constitution. We did put in an amendment to prohibit slavery that was almost a necessary symbol to reflect the Civil War and its outcome. We did make it clear that Congress could tax income in this country, notwithstanding Supreme Court opinions to the contrary. But Professor Bleich and I have written a large article some years ago about that it's frequent that Congress overrules the Supreme Court and, and uh, uh, it's not always that the court overrules the Congress. But all the other times that Congress did something that appeared foolish, or the courts did something that appeared foolish, or the President did something that was inappropriate behavior, uh, we muddled through without enacting constitutional amendments. Now, that doesn't mean that efforts haven't been made. We had a senator from Illinois by the name of Everett McKinley Dirksen, one of the Senate office buildings is named after him in Washington. He had great difficulty with the Supreme Court during the Chief Justiceship of Earl Warren, one of your favorite sons. In those days, the courts used to, the Supreme Court used to come down with its opinions on Monday. And on Tuesdays, Senator Dirksen would hold a press conference announcing that he was introducing constitutional amendments to overturn whatever opinions of the court he didn't like. And I'm not exaggerating, he offered amendments to nullify Baker versus Carr, the great reapportionment case, Shelley versus Kramer, the important equal housing case, and a whole host of civil rights and civil liberty cases that Senator Dirksen didn't like. Baker versus Carr was, in my mind, perhaps one of the most important legacies of the Warren Court and, and of uh, Justice Brennan, who wrote it. Um, and it was a very, very controversial case. People, we tend to forget how controversial that case was. Up to that time, everything else aside, the legislatures were usually elected out of very, very uh, rotten borough districts. And in most state constitutions, including Illinois, the Senate was elected on a geographical basis, and only the House was theoretically elected on a population basis. And Baker versus Carr came down with the fundamental proposition that then said one man, one, one vote. Clearly they meant one person, one vote. The women already had the right to vote. And it required all of the states to elect the 
both their houses of the legislature on a population basis. And Senator Dirksen was fit to be tied about that case. As far as he was concerned, uh, he was from, uh, uh, he was a lawyer from a small city in, in Illinois, Pekin, Illinois. But he was convinced that the big city folk like me who were in the legislature could not understand farmers' problems and problems of rural America, that, that the rural voters and the farmers needed a, a separate piece of the legislature which reflected their views and their needs. As far as he was concerned, I was a LaSalle Street farmer, the street where we practiced law in Chicago, and uh, I couldn't begin to understand what the difficulties were of the farm population. And so he had introduced this amendment to overturn Baker versus Carr when it came down. And it evoked a lot of interest in Illinois, and Senator Dirksen and I went on a talk show circuit where we would go around to various radio programs in the state, uh, his, my defending the case and his saying why we needed to change the Constitution to overturn it. And uh, in one program he was explaining this, this fundamental belief he had that, that um, city folk could not represent farmers adequately. And, and when he finished this, this uh, explanation, I said, well, Senator, it certainly is a respectable theory that you're advocating. Interest representation is what you're talking about. The, the Soviets have had that system for many years where the farms and the collectives and the, all, and the factories all elect representatives based on, on their particular uh, unit of, of activity. And he fell strangely silent. <laughs> and I thought, gee, I've convinced him. I was a brash 31-year-old legislator. I thought, here, I've convinced the United States Senator he's wrong. And as we walked out, he turned to me and he said, Sonny, nobody's ever called me a communist before. <laughs> Now, the senator did recognize that the court's word on the Constitution is final, but he would have made the amendment process a more common event. And there have been others like Senator Dirksen, and the current Congresses have been especially active in trying to, to change our basic document. Most recently, Congress has considered changing the Constitution to do the following. One, to require a balanced budget. Now, this amendment has passed the House, was defeated in the Senate by one vote, very courageous former senator, took a great deal of heat from his own party for, for withstanding the, the pressure and thinking that that was not worthy of a constitutional amendment. And I happen to agree with him because the consequences of this simple amendment, obviously everybody is for balancing a budget, but the consequences of this simple amendment would be awesome. Uh, primarily it would bring the courts into the political arena with vigor. Uh, it would be up to the courts to decide when the exceptions to this balanced budget amendment would, would uh, come into play. It would be up to the courts to decide some of the other uh, technicalities as to when the amendment would play. And in fact, it would turn the whole budgeting process into a legal process that would be ultimately resolved by the Supreme Court of the United States. A very bad idea. Uh, the enthusiasm for this constitutional change has abated some since the budget is now in balance maybe it is, but the idea has not died. Then another popular amendment is to impose term limits on everybody. I'm not sure it includes university professors, Nelson, or federal judges, but it would cover just about everybody else. Now we already have term limits for the presidency, as you may recall. It was put into the Constitution as an effort to finally to keep uh, Franklin Roosevelt from getting elected perpetually. There were many of his critics who didn't think he was mortal. Uh, it was an idea that Ronald Reagan 
uh, later on opined was a pretty stupid idea. This was after President Reagan was serving his second and last term under the Constitution, and self-interest, if not common sense, has kept term limits for congressmen and for state officials from passing the Congress, though many, many states have imposed uh, term limits on themselves. Another one that particularly dismays me is a, an amendment to prohibit flag desecration. And this amendment has passed the House on more than one occasion uh, and is getting closer in the Senate. Uh, the anticipation this year is that it will come within one or two votes of passing the Senate, and there are a couple of marginal votes. The problem of flag desecration only arises when the constitutional amendment is being debated. Otherwise, I would say that flag burnings in this country are just not at the top of our crime statistics. <laughs> but the Congress makes sure that it gets revved up every year or two by somebody insisting that the Constitution would be amended. Then there's an amendment to allow school prayer. The courts over the years have said that the, um, requiring prayer in the schools is unconstitutional, violates the separation of church and state. There have been various versions of this uh, amendment to overturn that doctrine. Um, I have to say that all the versions that I've seen make those of us whose religious views are not majoritarian uh, somewhat nervous, because I always worry about whose prayer is going to be ordained, and what about all those people who really don't think that there ought to be prayer at all. Then there's a proposal in the, to have a constitutional amendment to allow a line item veto by the president. Congress has passed a statutory version of this with mixed results. Uh, that may take the heat off of further efforts along this line. I'm not so sure. And then there's an amendment to set forth victims' rights in criminal cases. That's a very attractive, popular idea. After all, we have all these amendments in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution protecting these heinous criminals. Shouldn't there be something in there to protect the innocent victim and his or her family? Well, Oregon has such an amendment uh, that they adopted to their state constitution. Um, and I have to tell you that, that uh, um, they did it as a result of the, the initiative. Oregon, along with California, insists on making fundamental constitutional and legislative policy through the initiative. That idea came out of Wisconsin. And it uh, was one of those ideas that looked good when I was in junior high school. And as the years have gone by, it looks like a worse and worse way to make public policy. But Oregon has, as part of their constitution, a victim rights amendment, which the judges are struggling with. Uh, I teach the legislative process in law school, and I have to say, if a student of mine ever handed me a draft of anything that they wanted to put into a statute, let alone into a constitution that was as much gibberish as the Oregon, Oregon victim rights amendments, I'd give them an F. But that's a part of the Oregon Constitution, and judges have to struggle with it. Various versions of this amendment at the federal level are either unnecessary or awful, depending on whether the, Congress, the language seeks to repeal any of the Bill of Rights or simply uh, puts in some hortatory language that will make um, victims' families feel good. Then there's an amendment to require a supermajority vote on tax measures. This plays very well with the voters back home. But once again, it would thrust the courts right into the middle of the, some very hot political disputes, right into the political thicket that Justice Frankfurter warned us about, and clearly is not something that judges need to put on their judicial plates, nor would it help uh, with our fiscal policy to have the courts ultimately deciding that uh, um, this measure does, does require a supermajority and this one doesn't. Uh, there are others. Well, nobody reads the Supreme Court opinions quite as closely and continuously 
as Senator Dirksen used to do. There are other members of Congress who think we have such a good constitution that we need to improve it on a regular basis. Now, I think I owe this audience a declaration against interest. My fingerprints are on one of the amendments to the Constitution that was successfully adopted. I was one of the House managers for the 26th Amendment, which guarantees uh, the right to vote at age 18. It was a very popular idea. It still is well accepted, I think. And it was adopted and ratified in record time as a part of our Constitution. And it was motivated by a Supreme Court case which had said that Congress could not legislate the voting age for state elections. We had just passed a part of the Voting Rights Act in which we'd said that in state and federal elections, uh, the voting age would be 18 rather than what it had been previously, whatever the state law said. And the Supreme Court, in a uh, very complicated, difficult decision, said, well, Congress can do that for federal elections. They can change the voting age because that's their turf but they can't do it for state elections. That's up to the states to decide. And so we would have ended up with this administrative nightmare where people would have been eligible to vote at age 18 for Congress and for the president, but would have had to be 21 to vote for governor in the state legislature. And it looked like a, a, an administrative chaos, and the constitutional amendment seemed like a quick fix to this administrative nightmare. Now, I have to say, in retrospect, our efforts were probably unnecessary. The states would have changed their laws gradually and solved the problem, but uh, we fixed it with a constitutional amendment, and uh, we're one of those 17 that, that unfortunately amended the basic document. I also have my fingerprints on one that, that um, probably will gain more recognition in this audience, and that's the Equal Rights Amendment. I voted for it in the Congress, and I helped to extend the period for its ratification. And I have to say the fight over ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment tore the country apart. In retrospect, we probably have achieved, and certainly can achieve, all that is desirable in terms of the struggle for gender equality without a constitutional amendment. I didn't feel that way then. Not everybody feels that way yet. But we have come a long way without an equal rights amendment in the Constitution, and probably can get the other, the rest of the way necessary to get rid of gender inequality and gender discrimination without changing the Constitution. Um, as I said, I was, my fingerprints are on it, I was on the House Judiciary Committee when we successfully uh, forced the, the Equal Rights Amendment out of the Judiciary Committee. Um, it was opposed by our then chairman, Manny Seller, a longtime member of Congress who ran the committee pretty much with an iron hand. But um, uh, there were enough of us on the committee who uh, felt that we, we ought to make it a part of the Constitution so that we were able to, to overcome the opposition of our chairman. And I remember the day on which uh, we voted that out of committee. We got into the final vote in committee and Chairman Seller delivered a peroration uh, against the, the amendment. And he said, you men, because he would never allow a woman on the committee, you men will regret the mischief you're turning loose on this country today. This Equal Rights Amendment will just set the genders against each other. And then he went on with the controversial part of his peroration. He said, and women are inherently unequal. In my religion, he said, he was an Orthodox Jew, people aren't even allowed to sit on the same floor as the men, women aren't. And he said, and then to take care of the non-Jewish members of the, of the committee, he said, and you will recall there weren't any women present at the Last Supper. Well. <laughs> 
Herzog was then a member of the Congress, <laughs> not a member of the committee, but she heard about Manny Sellers' speech, and she came up to me and she said, you tell your chairman there'll be plenty of us at the next one. <laughs> well, an argument can be made that the effort to amend the Constitution for the Equal Rights Amendment was a part of the political battle that was going on about gender equality at the time, and that it was necessary to win some of those political battles to have a rallying cry like the constitutional amendment. And that's probably true of most efforts to amend the Constitution. They are good rallying cries for political efforts. But there is a price, because if all of the amendments to about which there's been a political ferment uh, if they had all been adopted, I assure you, I would not be carrying around this small document that I am carrying around. And the document would not play the role that it has played and continues to play in our democracy. Because our Constitution is not some 4th of July document. It's the base of our laws, of our government, of our legal system. And the people's affection for it is as a working document uh, that sets forth real rights and real governance of our political institutions. And the Constitution could not play that role if it were full of prohibition amendments or victim rights amendments and had the three-volume length that the Brazilian Constitution has, for instance. James Madison has uh, historically been the most successful amender of our Constitution. As the father of the Bill of Rights, he successfully amended it 10 times. He actually amended it 11 times because the 27th Amendment to the Constitution dealing with uh, the pay of members of Congress had been submitted by Madison with the original 10. Uh, that Congress didn't pass it, and uh, it wasn't ratified until 1992. Uh, so Madison gets the credit retroactively for the 26th Amendment, to, the 27th Amendment to the Constitution. But in urging the adoption of the original Constitution, uh, even before the first Congress, he argued that the draft before the people for ratification corrected one of the fundamental problems of the old Articles of Confederation. Under the old Articles of Confederation, uh, you needed unanimous consent of all the colonies, of all the states, to, to amend the Articles in any form. And he said the new Constitution made sure that the road to amendment should be, and I quote, marked and kept open, but it should be used only, and I continue to quote, for certain great and extraordinary occasions, end of quote. Well, current lawmakers seem to be proposing an amendment of the week. I wish they were more Madisonian in their outlook. Robert Goldwyn, a very distinguished constitutional scholar, ends his book on Madison's role as the father of the Constitution. The book is called From Parchment to Power. He ends the book as follows. He says, the American people never quite measure up to the expectations established for them by the Constitution, but it keeps pulling them upward or at least seems always to keep them from sinking into the depths of tyranny or oppression. And I would wish that the members of Congress, when they take that oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, would be talking about this very concise, very hallowed, very effective document. It isn't broken, and they ought to stop trying to fix it. Thank you very much.
we've, we've got time for some questions, and uh, you can you can run. All right. Okay. Yes. Is it a fairly new trend that amendments uh, on these extraneous or does this history go back some ways? Uh, it's a mixed bag. It's mostly recent. Um, there, I think that the Congress is less establishment-oriented than it used to be. The people get elected to Congress running against government, running against the institution. Uh, I, I, as I listen to some of the campaign speeches that candidates for Congress make, for the life of me, I don't know why they want to run. It sounds like such a terrible institution they're seeking so aggressively and so expensively. So once they get there, obviously there's nothing that has any traditional value to them. And so they're ready to change it at the drop of a hat. I think it's more recent than, than I'm going. Yes? I was wondering how many members of Congress are lawyers, and if there is a problem between those who have that lawyer experience and those who don't, how many as a proud member of my profession, I would love to be able to say that the lawyers always have the sense to realize what a good document it is. Unfortunately, some of the worst mischief makers are lawyers. Uh, Robert Barr, for example, some of you may remember him from impeachment um, activities, is a lawyer. He's got, he sponsored several of these amendments, uh, proposed amendments. Um, unfortunately, a law degree doesn't necessarily assure the electors if they're going to get somebody who understands what the Constitution is about. It should. It's a required subject in most law schools that I know, but uh, some people listen and don't absorb. Robert Bork, name I'm sure you all are familiar with, and I were classmates at the University of Chicago Law School and good friends. I have to precede my story by saying that Robert Bork was then as far to the left as he is now to the right. He used to, he was president of the Student Lawyers Guild and used to lecture me about uh, uh, how the revolution would pass me by if I spent too much time on my books and didn't get out there <laughs> promoting. But uh, he, his views changed as he got older. And um, When we were both on the Court of Appeals together, we would go around various places and speak. It was a way of getting two points of view on most subjects. And every once in a while, a constitutional question would come up, and I would remind him that he and I had the both had the same constitutional law professor. And I said, obviously, you didn't pay much attention. And he would remind me that he didn't go to class very often. He was usually at the local uh, watering spa. He said, and I used your notes. <laughs> My Surrey rejoinder was, yes, but you read them upside down because they couldn't make any sense of it. I saw I had Yes? I think it's one thing to say, and I think most of us would agree, that amendments should be reserved for exceptional and exceptionally important matters. But I wonder if you might try to help identify what those matters involve. And uh, you said a couple things that I want to connect up. You, you, you looked at the post-Bill of Rights amendments and says the vast majority of them have to do with procedure and elections and, and, and uh, relationships between grants and government. Um, and the, the, there are very few substantive amendments, like the 13th or the, the prohibition. Uh, and I'm wondering then, does that provide a basis for distinguishing some amendments, like the flag burning amendment, which most of us would agree is not, you know, a, a burning issue, no pun intended. But uh, that seems to be very different than the uh, term limits movement or even the line item veto. Uh, which deal with government. 
real deep problems people have with the way the political process works. And that ties back to your, uh, your kind of, uh, not disdain, but criticism of initiatives. I actually think there's a lot of problems with the way initiatives work generally in California. But I find too few people who dislike initiatives trying to explain and resolve the underlying dissatisfaction with what legislatures are doing that costs or not doing, as the case may be, which causes people to resort to well, your point is very well taken. Uh, first of all, there is a distinction between uh, amendments like the flag burning and term limits. One does deal with personal rights and liberties and responsibilities, and the other deals with the governance portion of the Constitution. Basically, our Constitution is in two fundamental parts. The basic document is a governance document, and the Bill of Rights deal with individual rights and responsibilities. Many law schools teach it in two separate pieces. Um, Having said that, though, I've become more and more convinced, I, I'm not yet a Madisonian, I think we did need and do need the Bill of Rights, but I'm more and more convinced that many of the other amendments of the Constitution, including even those that deal with personal rights, probably were not necessary. There's a very distinguished constitutional scholar at the University of Chicago, David Strauss. Some of you may have heard of him, read his work. He's a brilliant man, unlike uh, other people at the University of, of Chicago, he's not a bean counter. He looks at fundamental concepts. And, and uh, he feels, he, he is, is in the process of writing a book, taking the basic proposition that probably none of the amendments after the Bill of Rights were really necessary to achieve the, the, the status that we are now in. And I, when I first heard him make that argument, I said, you're talking about women's rights? Now, you know, he, 13th, 14th, and 15th, he says, probably, he said, no question that Congress would have passed statutes to that effect. And while there would have been some problem about whether or not um, uh, Dred Scott could have been affected by a statute. Um, but I was thinking about putting those aside. With, what about the, the uh, women's vote amendment? And he said, no, he said, you have to remember that at the time the amendment was adopted, many states were already, had reached that position. He said, and it's quite probable that the other states, perhaps with a prod from some kind of statute, could have achieved it without the necessity of a constitutional amendment. And, you know, the, again, I don't object to even 27 amendments, aren't that many. Uh, and the document is still very, very concise, but the problem is at what point do you start drawing the line? It is true that people are dissatisfied and restless about the way they are governed. Uh, one proof of it is the dwindling numbers that, that come out to vote in the elections. It's a chicken and the egg thing. One of the reasons that government isn't performing better is because less and less people are taking part in it, either as voters or as participants, and the result is you end up with more and more people not paying any attention to what's going on and then complaining about the product. But the problem with initiatives and the problem with constitutional conventions and the problem with these fundamental changes that constitutional amendments provoke is that they usually look like quick fixes. And I forget who was that great commentators that said for every difficult, complicated question, there is one quick, easy answer, and it's wrong. Um, who was it? Mankin. Mankin. Thank you. H.L. Mankin. Um, 
I worry about those initiatives, particularly, and especially now with the new communications modes. Uh, I see these initiatives passing in many states like California and Oregon by moneyed interests who have a lot of money to put into a campaign, by people who take a popular set, uh, a popular concept, victims' rights, and nobody pays attention to the real substance, to the real consequences of those words. Legislating is a very complicated job. It's, it, uh, I've spent most of my adult life learning how to be a legislator, and I freely confess that I still don't know half of what you really ought to know to be a complete legislator. And the notion that people can take that complicated job and do it on the quick, uh, you know, between reading the baseball scores and, and the comic strips and, and uh, learn enough about a complicated subject like, like the balance in the budget to put it in an amendment to the Constitution it scares me. It clearly is a symptom. It clearly is a symptom. It's not the disease, uh, the initiatives. Uh, I recognize that. But, but part of it has to do with the fact that, particularly when we're young, there's an impatience about the progress with which we make. The thing I've learned mostly over my 40 years in government is that it is damn hard to get a consensus on anything. And when you're talking about the rules of the game, which basically what is what legislation and the Constitution is, it's not easy to get people to agree on what the rules ought to be, and it ought to be hard to change the rules. I still hold a record, Nelson, for having introduced more um, bills in the first session that I was in the legislature that had never been introduced by any single legislator before. Fortunately, none of them passed. <laughs> because I was solving problems that people didn't even know they had, and I was offering solutions to them. I was quick to fix. I was 29 years old. I claim my... That's a youthful indiscretion. <laughs> yes? Yeah, I'm thinking that not only the Constitution is hard to amend, but also if you think back to the 1770s laws were kind of hard to make too. And it all goes back to the assumption that society, American society, could be more or less self-government. It didn't need a whole lot of laws and rules. It could take care of itself. And I'm wondering, after all your years in public service, if you think that assumption uh, holds today, do you think why the way no, it was a lot easier to, to uh, be a yeoman society when everybody was a yeoman. Uh, but when we live in big cities, cheek and jowl on top of each other and, and uh, uh, pollute the, the streams we, uh, that run through our countryside and pollute the air we breathe and do all the other things we do, uh, we need government much more desperately and in much greater detail than we did in the 1770s. And, you know, I, uh, I lived in what was then called a common law state, Illinois, when I started practicing law, and there were still many subjects on which the good old common law was sufficient. But the more I looked at the good old common law, I realized that it was old, but it wasn't very good. The good old common law of landlord and tenant said that the landlord always won until the legislatures passed some laws protecting tenants. The good old common law of debtor-creditor said that the creditor always won until we passed some laws protecting debtors. And the, the 
simplicity, the uh, simplicity, the sim simplest, simplistic notions that were underlay that earlier society we were, or at least thought we were, obviously have changed with the 200 some odd years since the Constitution went into effect. The beauty of the document, as far as I'm concerned, is that it was drafted in such general and elegant terms that we can still use it as our basic governance document. Now we have to wiggle every once in a while to make it fit, but basically in the society that our founders would never recognize, the document still is a fundamental document of governance. We run our country by this constitution, and that to me is awesome. Yes? Earlier you said, uh, you commented that the Constitution has a tendency to raise all of this up. And you used examples of Congress inevitably attempting to amend it. Perhaps uh, you'd like to comment on the fact that when Congress fails to do one of its specifically delegated duties to declare war and allow presidents, two presidents, to declare war without Congress, Yes, uh, as a creature of the Congress, as somebody who loved my years in Congress and still thinks of it as a great institution, I have been dismayed about both those instances uh, where Congress did not fulfill what I think was a part of its role under the Constitution to have a, a say in when our troops are put into serious harm's way. Um, but again, it's a subject that I found out was much more complicated than it appeared at first blush. I was a member of Congress and, and uh, pushing a statute that is now in the books called the War Powers Act. It was during the height of the Vietnam War and we were outraged at the notion that we were sending all these troops to Vietnam without the Congress ever having formally declared war and the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which Johnson always used as his uh, defense of why he had the authority to, to uh, send our troops. It was a very thin reed. Congress never had uh, declared war in Vietnam, and we never did. Um, and I was a proud co-sponsor, house sponsor of the War Powers Act. I thought it really was an effort to, to Congress to force future presidents to pay attention to the Congress when it came to acts of war. Well, the War Powers Act is still on the books, but it is one of those things that does not appear to me now, then, now as it appeared to appear to me then, to paraphrase a famous Supreme Court opinion, because I saw the War Powers Act after it was on the books for a while as a judge in several cases where members of Congress were trying to challenge actions of the president and doing various things. And it was difficult for me to reconcile this piece of legislation that I had helped sponsor and pass with the deliberate vagueness of the Constitution itself, which says that the president shall be commander in chief. And it's true that it also says Congress shall declare war. And if those two phrases seem inconsistent with each other, most historians have found that to be a fact. And that is that, that the founders deliberately wanted that vagueness, that, that almost uh, mystical, confusing area of where the president's powers left off and where the Congress's powers began. Because as far as the founders were concerned, the Congress had one ultimate trumping power, 
over the president's being the commander-in-chief. Let me, without giving you a military history of the Constitution, the concern that, that our founders had was that not to get in the way of a George Washington trying to lead the troops. They had seen the way the Continental Congress had, had made it more difficult for him to, to uh, do what a commander should do because of the restrictions that they tried to impose on him. Certainly later on, Lincoln uh, saw those same problems when Congress would try to impose uh, restrictions on his generals and how they should fight the Civil War. And there's always been a tendency on the part of Congress to, to try to run a war by committee. And I assure you, it's not something that lends itself to committee action. Well, when I saw the difficulty that there was in trying to to reconcile these two conflicting pieces of the Constitution. I recognize that the founders wisely said, if it's important enough for the Congress to trump the president's power as commander-in-chief, they can always do it because they hold the purse strings. And I was in the Congress of the United States when we finally voted down that last beseeching effort on the part of Jerry Ford, I remember Henry Kissinger was prowling the back quarters asking for that last $600 million so that we could leave Vietnam with dignity. And Congress said, no more money. And we left Vietnam at the end of a helicopter, as you remember. And some people still think it was the most ignominious day in our military history. But as far as Congress was concerned at that point, we were convinced that that was the only way we would get out of Vietnam that all the secret solutions that Nixon had had and all the, the peace with dignity that, that everyone else had had just wasn't going to happen. We were going to say no more money. And as troubled as I am by what is our policy in Kosovo and how we get out of Kosovo and what, what it is we seek to achieve in Kosovo, if there is ever enough of a consensus in this country to reflect itself in a consensus in the Congress, they can cut off President Clinton in a New York minute by just saying, no more money. And that is the real way that Congress does or does not declare war. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.